0: Welcome to The Farcast, over 200 episodes and still going strong, bringing you experts and insiders to help you navigate the investing landscape. Now, here's your host, Michael Farr.
1: Welcome to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week, July the 7th. Here we are in the third quarter. Of 2022, and it just gets more interesting, and uh, I suppose a little bit more fun for some than others. The trend still seems to be down. We're in the bit of a uh, middle of a bit of a reversal at the moment as things move to the upside. We have a great forecast for you this morning. Jim Urio is going to start from the Chicago Exchange. Tell us what he's seeing, uh, and you know Jim has been around a while. We're going to ask what this, if, if he's seeing anything now that looks familiar to things perhaps he's seen in the past. Dan Mahaffey on Boris Johnson's resignation, and also why no one wants uh, to actually have Candidate Biden or Candidate Trump again, and then our great friend. Robert Frick, chief economist for Navy Federal Credit Union, millions of members, and so when Bob talks to us, he tells us what they're seeing in terms of their credit applications and credit scores and what consumers are really doing. Let's get quickly right now to Jim Murillo. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for being with us again, and good morning.
2: Thank you for having me, Michael. I appreciate
1: it. We're really glad you're here. I've got so much to talk to you about this morning, uh, Jim. I I said. Uh, yesterday uh, that the Fed is proving it can slow the economy. Markets are falling in response, but can the Fed tame inflation? I I think somewhat, but enough. And the big question is, how long will the economy have to go? How low will it have to go? How low will the Fed drive it in its attempt to curtail inflation Uh, while the economy's shutting down. So the economy's shutting down, Fed's continuing to hike, wants to kill inflation. When does one side or the other yell, uncle?
2: So you just said the Fed has the power to slow the economy down. We know that, we knew that. The thing that's the question and remains the biggest question right now is do they have the tools to be able to see how how their tools of slowing the economy down are working and be able to pivot when they need to. Um, If you looked, you know, last week we saw that uh, Atlanta Fed GDP now telling us negative 2.1% on the GDP. The Bloomberg uh, model saying there's a 40% chance we're going into recession in the next couple quarters. Um, A lot of different, you talked about inflation, a ton of different things have rolled over. Copper's down 30%, crude is down 20%. Many, many of the other commodities are. I personally believe inflation has peaked and is pulling back. But the thing I worry about, is the Fed not being able to see that because they don't have the greatest track record of being able to see the, the results of their handiwork. An and awful they keep track tight- record,
1: in fact. There's awful a, track an record. An awful
2: track record. I like to be nice this early in the morning, but who am I kidding? Yeah, they have an awful track record In that. So the, the point is that is that I think they're going to keep tightening despite the fact that, that we're going in a recession. And here's the real kicker. When we see that next CPI number on July 13th, the rents and rents equivalent portion of it, which lags, is going to make it look worse the way it made it look better the last couple CPI readings. And so the Fed, inflation has peaked in my opinion, but it's going to take a couple months for the Fed to realize that. That being said, I think the stock market has one good pullback left in it, maybe down to close to 28, 29% in the S&Ps I'm talking about. And then, as we know from that Goldman study that came out a couple of weeks ago, uh, the downturn tends to bottom and reverse um, when the Fed flips from... Pockets to the neutral dollars, and I think that comes pretty quickly after that. In the fall, I'm going to start liking stocks, I think, but right now I don't.
1: Okay, you, you think that inflation may be peaking? Let me let me let me press back a little bit there. When I saw. Uh, The airlines United raised pilot salaries by 14% American Airlines 17% Delta folks on strikes, I begin to think you know the baggage handlers the flight attendants and all the other unions and everybody who touches anything that looks like an airplane is going to demand more pay and with these sorts of pay increases coming and I understand there are layoffs out there, but there still seem to be a shortage of employees. If you guys are trying to hire, or we're trying to hire, I, I'm lo- I'm trying to hire right now. Um, uh, those those kind of th- that those goes, goes beyond shelter costs. You know, that's another very type of very sticky, uh, insidious inflation that continues to eat away and rise. And so I'm not sure that it's that it's peaked, and I don't see a real let up. When I talk to my car dealer friends on the sh- chip shortages big time. They can't get cars on their lots. I talked to one over the weekend. He said, I normally have three to 400 cars uh, at my dealership. He said, I've got 70, 80 cars on the dealership. Now, this was Friday. He says, I'm going to go back Monday. He said, they're going to be 45 cars. Now, the trucks are going to come this week and I'll get back to my 80 cars. But he said, I can't keep any inventory in. So it's not the matter that I can't get the price I need. He said, I just can't get the units to sell. So I'm a little more suspicious that we could be near a top on in inflation, but when you and I talk about peaking, it's that top rate. Is it is it still going up at 8% and will it make a big difference if it just slows to going up 6%? I'm, there there well, are a couple of
2: questions in there. Sorry. No, no. And you make a very, very valid point. The wage part of it is a really, really interesting component of it. And when I say I think inflation has peaked, I think the rate of inflation is beginning to slow down. I don't think prices are going down. People get so confused regarding right, inflation. Right disinflation or deflation. I still think we're going to be an inflationary period, but just not running at the same levels we were before. Now, the wage part of it is interesting. Now, if you read the MMT book, The Deficit Myth, you know part of that is you take advantage of these time periods to try to drive up wages, and the government competes for wages against the the private sector. You've read that book, right? It's terrifying. It reads like a Stephen King novel. And I mean, every every, um, theory they espouse in it is stupider than the one before, and that's part of the thing, and that's what we're doing right now. The government competes for labor and drives the wages, but what I was going to say is that you know, when you've added 40% to M2 money supply, everything, including wages, has to readjust to the new price. Uh, Brian Westbury, uh, we had on my podcast, which I'm going to have you on soon as a payback, um, you know he always describes it as if you have $10 and 10 apples, and that's it. Each dollar is worth one apple. Now, all of a sudden, if you throw four more dollars into the mix, now each apple is essentially worth $1.4. And that's what's happened, too. They've thrown so much money. And so, you know, yes, real estate prices have gone up probably more than they should have. But the thing that would make them come back 40 to 50 percent is if market position had built up so much over the past decades like it did before 2008. Um, that's not happening. So there's, what I'm trying to get at, and I know this is long-winded, is that there's a level of prices for everything. That has to adjust to the new amount of money supply and wages are the last one to come. And yes, it's a little bit scary, but I don't think it's terrifying, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. But OK, so we have this inflation that continues, as you said. It's, it's not that it's going to come down. It's just that it's going to go up more slowly. Uh, so that you're gonna see a peak in the growth rate of prices, but the growth in prices is going uh, will slow at some point. So, but the consumer is still gonna face higher prices, and they're gonna face higher prices that are not keeping up with wages, right? So they're still losing purchasing power in an economy that's two-thirds driven by consumer demand. So I'm I'm just thinking about a Fed that continues to be aggressive. If they do three quarters again here, if they do another three quarters on top of that. Uh, at the September meeting, if they raise and raise and raise, uh, my, I think that they could drive this uh, slowdown. I think more dramatically, and perhaps cause a, a, a deeper recession—not um, only a recession, but it, but it, but a deeper recession. The sort of shallow one that everybody wants to call
2: uh, right now. What what do you think? So I think the wild card in that theory is energy policy. I think. if if we can pivot on energy policy, and that's going to also mean that, you know, these elections show up in one specific way in November, if we can pivot on energy policy, I will believe that the recession will be relatively mild, maybe a little longer than normal, but not the end of the world type of thing. If we cannot, which is odds are we cannot, I think it'll be deeper than that. You mentioned a couple of things, though. You said the consumers are starting to, uh, you know, to, to dig bunkers and not spend what they are. And my Eurostat in the Eurozone, two months in a row, consumers are spending less on food and drink, despite the fact that those prices are very, very elevated. So things are changing in certain parts of the world. So remember, the things. When my call on inflation peaking is that the Fed is destroying demand through higher rates. Higher prices are destroying demand through higher prices. You mentioned supply chains, and I know you talk anecdotally to people, but the New York Empire Fed and the Philly Fed uh, two weeks ago, both showed shortened times of um, supplier delivery times. Again, this is these are baby steps, but I do feel that if the supply chain can start to heal itself at the same time, higher prices are um, are handling higher prices and the Fed is handling higher prices. That's when we see a move. What was the question? I forgot. Guys, when we get to our age, we just start talking and sometimes you're not even, I don't even arrive at the station. But anyway, what's up, what's up? You know, Fred uh, is the answer. Fred.
1: Fred was that fella I met last night whose name I couldn't yeah, I remember. remember. I got it now. Fred, good old Fred. There he is. There's right. a title for this. You could title this week's podcast, Harry. The good old Fred, probably. Okay. What, what I'm what I'm getting at here is. Uh, people have asked me hey far how you, you you're saying you think we're going to go into recession uh, mild recessions only going to last for two quarters is what we're hearing and and I say well I, I don't know the answer to that if you tell me how bad and dramatically the Fed missteps then I'll tell you how deep but it, this is all a matter in my opinion of how poorly, you know, from, from poor to awful, the Fed actually navigates this, as, as, was, was, was the question there. Does that make sense to you? And then I want to go to why, the, why we
2: script these things. Perfect sense. And here's what my wager is on. I think the Fed goes 75 at this July meeting. I think the Fed plans on going in September again and probably does go in September again. And I think there will be nothing beyond that. And I'm willing to place somewhat of a wager on that. I haven't figured out exactly how to do it. I think it's probably going to involve tech stocks come September. If rates are going back lower, those could outperform to the upside. But um, that's what I believe. I think the Fed is, make, is currently in the process of making a misstep. But the question becomes, when will they realize that? And I think that that comes somewhere around the September meeting.
1: You know, those tech stocks, Jim, that, there's this there's this uh, portfolio manager out there named Kathy Woods, um, who's done the most abysmal job on earth. Uh convinced everybody, in my opinion, that she was a fabulous portfolio manager by buying the hottest tech stock she could buy. Uh, And when they all went up, she claimed genius. Now they're all dropping like a rock. She's down some, I don't know, 70% or something. She's lost. And she's had 1.6 billion of inflows in the first six months of 2022. Now, I got to tell you, if, if I was down 80%, from the highs. Uh, I would not be seeing 1.6 billion in inflows, Yuri. I
2: don't know about you, but this is one hell of a salesperson. So I did not know that statistic that you just said. That absolutely blows me away. It's the craziest thing, but it's a function, as you're saying, it's a function of the idolizing we do for certain money managers. And To me, that goes on the side of the whiteboard that said, we haven't quite learned our lesson yet, and capitulation might not have happened. And that's why I think one more push lower for capitulation, because I hear stories like that. And that blows me away. But again, I will go back to the fact there's a lot more money out there than there used to be. $1.5 million ain't what it used to be, if you know what I'm saying.
1: Why can't they idolize me?
2: I mean, you know, I've worked with <laughs> I this do. for a long time. Uh, I do. Thank you
1: very much. Fred I got does. you that and Harry on my farm. side. <laughs> Well, you know, I got you and Harry. What I don't have is the 1.6 billion in 6 months. Okay, look, I'm 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 running out of time here and I got three more things I got to cover with you, but let me see if I can do them really quickly. Jim, we we always in our business want to script things like this. We always want to say here's what's gonna happen over the next two or three months, and then you're gonna see this, and then the Fed, I expect, will do that, and then by the end of the year, everything's gonna be fine. Uh, Scripting an economy and the market's reaction with this many moving pieces just seems kind of ridiculous to me, and yet everybody keeps doing it. When does it make sense to say, I really don't have any idea, and I need to set some parameters and have some discipline to keep my emotions and my hubris out of this?
2: Oh, I think there's no question that we just come up with these, you know, fanciful plans for the next um, two quarters, and nobody is particularly good at it. We've seen that in Kathy Wood and in Michael Saylor. They were not. They were not as great as everybody thought. But you asked two different questions. Predicting what's going to happen in the economy is much, much different than trying to predict what's going to happen in the equity markets. Realistically, when we go into recession, the average um, the average pullback, is about thirty percent. We're most of the way through that. We've gone through most of that too. So, And for me to say that the economic worries are going to happen and that picture is going to be so complex and what the Fed's going to do is pivot to a more dovish stance and that's what's going to help equity markets and that's particularly going to help tech tech stocks because they're going to like lower rates and they've just been absolutely pummeled. Um, You know, Kathy Wood can tell you that better than anybody. So to ask your question, yeah, I mean, these are just, is it throwing darts? I'm hoping it's a little better and more accurate than just throwing darts. Let's say it's throwing darts from a pretty good dart player to try to predict what's gonna happen to these things. And again, I I, I think, I I don't tell people what to do. Like say what I do is that when the stock market's down 25% or if the VIX spikes to 60, which it hasn't really yet, it's usually historically been a good time to buy, not sell. It all boils down to the George Costanza method of investing. I don't know if you remember the Seinfeld episode when he says when every fiber in his entire body tells him to sell, he buys because he's always yes. on. Well, that's that's a that was one of the most valuable economic lessons I've ever learned by that show because it works.
1: It works every time. Jim, final question: You said that energy policy was the key. Tell me what happens to oil here. Some are saying one hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars. Other investment banks are saying sixty-five dollars. What happens to the price of oil?
2: You follow this closely. I think we're currently going to pull back oil to approximately eighty bucks. I don't think it's going to go below that. I think these knuckleheads who say 300 on the upside or 60 on the downside, they are analysts who are trying to, to grab attention and make a name for themselves. You and I are old. We don't need to make a name for ourselves anymore. I think oil pulls back around the $80 and then it starts to resume higher again. I think the new, in, unless there's a major pivot in the next year or so, I think we've got to get used to $100, $120 oil. Ladies and
1: gentlemen, our friend Jim Murio, your Farcast fan, favorite, Jim. Thanks so much for being with us. We always learn so much. Thank you, friend. We're going to be back with Dan Mahaffey right after this.
0: We're glad you could join us this week on the Farcast. Now back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining me now, Dan Mahaffey from the
1: Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, our senior political analyst on The Farcast. Now in season five, soon to be in season six. Can you stand it? I really can't. Ladies and gentlemen, before we get to Dan this morning, I'd like to read just a couple of things to you that I want to discuss with Dan, but we missed our July 4th edition and we were ready to do one. Our friend Harry uh, got COVID and he got a fairly bad Whack case of COVID. So we're glad he's back and well. Um, and I want to add a couple of things. Uh, faced with a loss of trust and faith in Washington, Wall Street, banks, and big business, Americans struggle with huge economic challenges and resulting melancholy psyche. We are left to watch as Congress drafts incomprehensible thousand page laws. Banks are stress test and Wall Street bigwigs float by in the comfort of their chauffeured town cars. There's a sense in America that our leaders, elected or otherwise, have lost touch. I wrote that in 2012. It's in my 2013 book, Restoring Our American Dream. I wrote that 10 years ago. It uh, hasn't changed a lot. Um, I wrote that book as a call to arms uh, and as a reminder of what we hold dear. And here's what I said about America. And I'm always, I have to tell you, I, I really always cringe when anybody uh, looks up and says, I'd like to quote myself. I'd like to tell you what I wrote. I, I've always found that just, just to be horribly arrogant. What I'd like to tell you uh, is it's it's for me, it's kind of the opposite. I don't think I've written anything actually, that was this good uh, ever, and I don't think I could do it twice, so I'm falling back on, the, uh, on, an, uh, on an old uh, saw here, but I wrote about Americans, America's religion, and I said, America has a religion. It is noble and sacred and pure. It's carried in the hearts and souls of her citizens and is the pride and legacy of committed, self-reliant, and determine generation upon generation. America's fate is one of possibility, hope, longing, yearning, hard work, and in spite of intimidating, almost impossible odds, glorious triumph. America offers her fertile, self-reliant loam for fabulous imaginings that grow into steps tenaciously taken and result in victories previously thought impossible. This faith is so pervasive that it is unwise to tell Americans they can't because the American heart will reflexively whisper back, oh, yes, we can. America's religion is our American dream. I really believe it. I believe it. Every day I wake up in the morning, I had all my trips downtown, uh, to our nation's capital where our offices are. Uh, I believe in that possibility, and despite of the frustrations, uh, the disappointments, and uh, those things that make us feel, so many of us, that we've lost our way and want to get back to an America that we knew. Well we can we can get back to the America of the future that will be different from the America that we knew, but it is absolutely as full of promise and potential, and it is ours there for, for the taking. It is ours for the taking and future generations, and I hope we don't lose sight of it. I know that my friend, Dan Mahaffey, hasn't lost sight of it. Dan, can you believe I wrote those cautionary words 10 years ago, and we, uh, it feels like I could have written them yesterday, doesn't it? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I think other than the fact that Lincoln no longer makes the town car, they are all spot on.
1: Hey, I don't know the last time you were in Manhattan getting in those cars, Dan. There are a lot of Suburbans, but there's still a lot of those town cars around. They're about 15 or 20 years old, but they just they were such good rides. Those guys, those drivers just beat those things to death. So. Um uh, uh, nobody likes, uh, the, neither party likes their guy right now. Uh, the Democrats don't like Biden. The Republicans don't
3: like Trump. What does that mean? <laughs> well, look, I think it goes back to uh, check the archives. We've talked about polling that showed a, a 2024 Biden-Trump matchup would have 75% of voters wanting someone else. There's an yes. appetite out there for new leadership. And I think the parties are finally getting around to it, even if uh look and there's there's separate dynamics with the grassroots where I think the uh the liberal grassroots were already skeptical of Biden and probably have left him while on the Republican side the grassroots are so firmly behind trump uh but still there there there's an appetite for new leadership. As we've talked uh, previously on the Republican side, we really see that coalescing around Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Who it is on the Democratic side is unclear, though, because, uh, you know, Vice President Harris has gotten the, the, you know, frankly, the crap portfolio uh, and has not really caught on as a uh, inspiring leader, frankly.
1: Dan, one of the things I've read was that uh, President Trump may go ahead and announce for the presidency for two reasons. One, he's under pressure from these uh, January 6th and potential legal filings that are coming. And also because he fears the momentum of Ron DeSantis and that he needs to sort of get back onto the stage before another foregone conclusion or decision is made for him. If he does that, uh, one, do you think he'll do that? But two, if he does do that, what does that do to those November elections for the Republicans?
3: Well, one, it gets, uh, I think there's a 100% chance he does it. And I think it's a nightmare for some Republicans because it distracts from the economic issues they want to focus on. It brings together the the January 6th hearings, which we have. It brings back a lot of those uh, Memories of the Trump uh, leadership and 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 Republicans by and large want to move away from that. The, they look, they'll they'll talk in some rooms now about how uh, DeSantis is finally pulling ahead of Trump in places like Iowa. And New Hampshire come the primary. So there's whispers that Trump is no longer the the force that he once was. But uh, mind you, he's still a significant player in the hearts of the Republican base. What does it do? Uh, what does it says, do to this?
1: What does it do to the House count in in November?
3: Well, that's what I would say that to the House count. We talk about this, and I think it's still the same effect of what we've seen on some of these social issues. It's still going to be a bad year for Democrats. All the fundamentals are against them. Uh, but what does this do? Perhaps temper a few suburban seats? Uh, means they lose 30 seats instead of 40. Uh-huh.
1: And the Democrats are saying that, you know, they're, they've they got two issues that could be very important to them right now, uh, the abortion issue and the guns issue. Issue uh, and they feel that President Biden is squandering those, not making strong enough cases. Are they right?
3: Well, I think they're right, but they're they're torn in two different directions. One, uh, you can't do much about. Uh, I'll start with guns. You you can't do much about the recalcitrance of the Republican Party. The you know the measures that were done just to get uh, expanded background checks and support for these other laws. That was a a major legislative lift uh, and still short of some of the other measures that there are wide public support for. And as we've talked to, that comes down to politics. I think that issue stays salient, though, one, because It's not going away. This this pace of violence, these shootings in our communities continue. And, uh, Michael, I grew up not far from Highland Park, Illinois. I know that Main Street well. I've eaten at those restaurants. I've shopped at those shops. This is now happening in communities across the country. That issue is not going to go away. Uh, But the the I don't see it rising to a level that it breaks through Many of these structural issues we've talked about—the way districts are drawn, the filibuster—it doesn't break through that. And while just adding to the sense of political cynicism, I don't see much on it changing quickly. Uh, this, that this, said, this. on a, on a on abortion, um, there's also the frustration I think between the 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 Democratic base and the activist groups, which are uh, you know very maximalist and and engaged and angry on this. And a, a public that is, I think, still also trying to make sense of this decision. In one hand, shocked that a, a right has been pulled back like this, uh, but for many Americans, we're now just finally understanding the impact of it and the legal can of worms that this has opened.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I, I look at another one of these dreadful, horrible shootings, and I'm still as perplexed and stunned as as as, as ever as I am every time. I can't imagine why anybody would do such a horrible thing but i think that this uh uh different this time i think that this father of this uh of this man uh, and i'm not even going to mention his name um i'm not even going to mention his name i have his name in front of me he's something 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 the third uh, uh and and just a i'm sorry i'm going to say this folks just a dreadful looking person uh, uh and let me go ahead and be judgmental i mean i Jeez, uh, you know, you talk about profiling out there. Somebody, somebody should have been able to look at this, this, this guy and said, wait a minute, there's a, there's a problem here. Uh, and the, the father sponsored him to get the gun. I think that's going to be an issue here. I, I, I just do. And I, and actually it should be, it absolutely should be, you know, you've got this, you know, horror show of a kid that apparently you haven't done much to raise and, and you're out helping him buy a gun really shame on you and and more than that
3: you're going right. go to And and if we're, we're going to have this discussion about firearms in this country then let's have it as a a right but also a responsibility uh, like right. you say for the, the responsibility of bringing up the kid or or co-signing his license or giving people access to these you know the 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 way the family members and shops and others facilitate these these purchases uh, we have to have that broader discussion about it. If you are going to respect that right, then understand the power and responsibility of it too.
1: you know our friend p j o'Rourke used to used to say, I mean his famous line about Congress giving them uh, money and power is like giving car keys and whiskey to a teenage boy I mean it's just absolutely responsible p j s being funny, but i mean I, i'm uh, I, I own a lot of guns I've owned guns all my life, and I hunt and I shoot, and I do all of those things and it, it, you know, you have to be a, a gun is a is is what the most dangerous thing you can you 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 can have and and you you and I lock them up, and and my everybody in my house was educated about them and and I have hundreds of friends who all are in the same position. Um, you, you don't go out and you by some troubled youth a gun. I don't know why you have to say that sort of thing out loud anymore. Um, Come back quickly to Ukraine with me, Dan, we're out of time, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Uh, You said uh, your scholars were saying that the tables were turning and perhaps we're at an inflection point.
3: Right, we're at an interesting point in Ukraine's conflict here. The, The paradox continues to be the Russians have equipment, but not men. The Ukrainians have men, but not equipment. In many ways, the Ukrainians have also drawn down, they've used up their old Soviet era equipment. And now it is so important that that pace of replacement and rearmament from the West continues quickly. And the concern is that we just are not appreciating the industrial pace of this conflict, the the way that weapons need to be produced, the scale of it. And it's a wake-up call for how future conflicts might be fought, too.
1: Finally, Dan, in in 30 seconds, if you can, and I hope you this, I don't know, this probably shows how concerned I am about this. Uh, Boris Johnson is out as Prime Minister of the UK and uh, he's certainly been very entertaining, but I put him sort of last because I can't believe it matters
3: that much. Does it matter that much? Right. Look, The Economist had the best headline. They called it Clownfall. Um, oh, but the, uh, what I will say about it is it's just another sign of, uh, you know, a Western democracy looking weak and divided. You have uh, Biden being unpopular, Macron just losing his parliamentary majority. Now this uh, drama and turmoil in Westminster does not look good at a time when Moscow and Beijing are challenging the West.
1: Dan Mahaffey is the Director of Policy at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, the Senior Political Analyst on the Farcast. Dan, you're the best, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna be back with Robert Frick, Chief Economist, Navy Federal Credit Union, millions of members. Let's find out what they're doing and what he thinks is coming up next for this economy that seems to be slowing and in which lots of folks are struggling. So please stay with us.
0: Michael Farr and the Farrcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast, and your host, Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining
1: us now, a Farcast fan favorite, Bob Frick who is the chief economist at Navy Federal Credit Union, one of the largest credit unions in the country. How many members, Bob? Oh man, we
4: have uh, 16 million members. We are the largest by far.
1: 16 million members at the Navy Federal Credit Union, which means uh, on the inside, Bob gets to see what sixteen million consumers I'd say that's a pretty good sampling that beats any of these uh uh you know uh nBC uh Fox News polls out there you see the way I did both sides of the street with the NBC and the Fox News polls I could have <laughs> yeah. done c n n and Fox I suppose let's do that c n n and fox CN- NBC universal actually writes me checks I'm going to be nicer to them all right hey Bob uh are we in recession
4: uh no we're not in recession um are we going into recession? We're inching towards it, but I think the last figure I saw was a good consensus estimate is 38%, 38% chance of recession in the next year, which means, of course, there's the vast majority of people think that we're not going to be in recession in the next year. But it feels like we're in recession for a lot of people.
1: The vast majority of uh, uh, economists or uh, talking heads feel like we're not gonna be in recession because it seems to me that the average American is sort of saying that they feel like we are. What Do you have any indications from what you're seeing at all of those millions of members at Navy Federal Credit Union? Well,
4: we are nothing if not statistically significant. I mean, yeah, you know, okay. all of our data really reflects the, uh, the country at large, but there was a Monmouth poll that came out, I think just a few days ago, and it really tells the story. Um, the top four things that people are worried about are basically inflation, 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 and inflation. Inflation, number one, gas prices, number two. Then you have bills and groceries. And then the economy and the big worry about the economy, of course, is inflation. So we haven't experienced an inflation shock like this since the 1970s and early 80s. And I think people have gotten into this low inflation mindset. And now that it's reared its ugly head again, people are shocked. People are shocked when they go to the pump. People are shocked when they go to the grocery store. And that puts people in a pessimistic mood. And that's right out of the behavioral playbook. That's loss aversion. And loss aversion, we, we count losses much higher than we count gains. That's just how we're wired.
1: So what does that mean for behavior of the consumer going forward, and does it become self-fulfilling for an ongoing economic slowdown? I don't think it's
4: self-fulfilling yet, but what it means is people are starting to pull back on discretionary spending to a degree, not going to restaurants as much, for example. That's one of the canaries in the coal mine that I follow. And we saw personal consumption expenditures come down in May, which was significant, but they didn't come down much. And we're still spending at a very high level. That's not to say that spending drops will, won't increase or accelerate. They might. But I think we're calling this contest while we still have two quarters to play.
1: Does does the Fed uh, have this right? They seem to be determined to tame inflation as their number one priority. While they're trying to tame inflation, which they don't seem to control with a uh, rather blunt instrument uh, for a tool, you know, using the Fed funds rate, will they just keep raising rates as the economy slows, trying to get a hold of inflation while they tank the economy and send it into recession? That's sort of what I think is more likely to happen.
4: Well, once again, Michael, we agree. That was going to be one of my shocking points, but you just made it for me already. What's causing inflation, at least half of inflation, at least half of that 8.6%, it's all international. We have no control over it. Food prices, energy prices, international supply chain is still bedeviling us. We still can't get microchips for cars, which is driving up car prices. The Fed only has control over less than half, in my opinion, of inflation, which is domestic inflation. Yes. It's housing and it's services inflation, which is starting to grow as services spending grows. So- they use their blunt instrument to get people to spend less. And, you know, the drug works, but the patient dies, I think, is the big fear.
1: Well, that, uh, that is, I think, the fear. And folks ask me, you think we are going into a recession? And I say, yes. Why? Because I think the Fed's going to overstep. How bad an inflation? Just a couple of quarters, right, Mr. Farr? I don't know the answer to that because I don't know how badly the Fed will overstep. If you can tell me what the Fed's going to do, I'll give you a better my better guess about inflation. But right now, I don't see it. Bob, one of the things that I do see, though, is I watched what happened at United Airlines is they got a 14 percent pay increase for pilots. American Airlines did 17 percent. Delta's working on it now. But you know that the baggage handlers, you know that the flight attendants, you know that everybody involved is going to go for pay increases. These things get entrenched. These are stubborn. These are insidious when it comes to wage increases. It affects profit margins, which I believe are still expecting 10% profit in cre- increases this year, earnings growth this year. I think those still have to come down in the second half of the year. 9% for 2023, those have to come down. What am I missing, Bob? Why Why is far so concerned? And somebody should tell him he shouldn't be. Well,
4: I'm concerned. I'm not maybe as concerned as much as you are, but we know from history that if inflation continues for too long, we do get into spirals. Companies start proactively raising rates, whether their inputs are costing them more or not. But that usually takes time, um, a couple of years. I don't think we're at that point yet. I certainly don't think wage growth, which is still far under the rate of inflation, is inflationary at this point. Um, not nearly so much as the things that we've discussed, you know, energy, food, demand for services, stuff like that. So I think that's a huge concern. I think we probably have six months to a year before that becomes entrenched, hopefully, and we have some signs that commodity inflation is coming down, but hopefully things cool down or we go into a mild recession and then we no longer have to worry about that.
1: Jim Murillo says that energy policy in his mind, will be the key for whether we really go into recession or whether we don't. He thinks that's the key. We've seen oil drop on that Atlanta Fed survey for GDP last Friday below $100 a barrel. Do you think that energy policy is the key? And what is going on with The price of oil and what do you expect there? And why is gold still at $1,742 an ounce? I mean, we haven't seen that. We're not seeing inflation there. We're not seeing the, I mean, we're seeing this hugely amazingly strong dollar, 101 parity versus the euro. I mean, what why why all of these contradictory things, or do they make more sense to you than they make to me? Well, I guess I'd have to ask you,
4: what is energy policy? Is energy policy just (laughs) sitting around and watching what the international energy markets do? That's our energy policy. You know, where we messed up with energy policies, we let all the refineries shut down when demand was low. We could have a lot more oil in the system, but we don't have the refineries to handle it. I mean, if there's an industrial, a national industrial policy, that shouldn't have been allowed to happen. And, you know, I'm with you. I'm not a big government advocate at all, but something should have been done about that. I've written about gold a lot over the years, and only people who think gold is predictable are people who have faith in gold. I do not believe yes. that gold prices are predictable.
1: I don't I don't believe that oil prices are predictable either. I've never, I, for the life of me, I mean, you've got two or three major money center banks with brilliant economists calling for oil to go to $150, $200 a barrel. At, at the right same time, you have uh, Morgan Stanley, and I, there was another one out saying that it's going to $65 a barrel, and they're looking at the same raw data. Right. And these are really smart people, and both of them make about as much sense to me uh, at where I just scratch my <laughs> heads and say, hey, why don't you all just say you don't have any damned idea? Because what I know to be the case is you don't have any damned idea. I've right. watched you people for 35 years. I haven't seen you get this right yet.
4: Well, Michael, I I am one of the first people to say I have no damn idea. um, I know. It's why I
1: love you. (laughs) It's why you're so credible.
4: Here's the thing. I worked, actually, I was the editorial director of a family of investment newsletters, and we had some unbelievable energy analysts there. And they basically said, we don't have any damn idea. They picked energy companies not based on perceived prices, because as one of them explained it to me, a brilliant guy. It's chaos theory. There's so many factors involved that you cannot possibly divine, you know, and I, I use that in the old Greek um, Yo, I love it. form of the word, divination, right? You look at um, bird entrails to figure out what the future is. There's too many variables. You can't pick it. The best you can do is know that it's variable and come up with plans to assume that oil is gonna be high. Also assume it's gonna be low. Assume the mid range and then make policy accordingly. Because if you make one bet, especially on an extreme, you're going to wind up with egg on your face because you just don't know.
1: Yes. And but now, look, folks, that's a hard thing to say that you just don't know. But if you really believe that you don't know and you have to make decisions in an uncertain environment, knowing that the next 24 hours could bring sunny skies or a, a tornado. You, you make some very different decisions, but those are the ones that are required. And I think if you really don't know, those are the only types of decisions you can make to be responsible. You know, my friend, Doug Cass, I'm sure you know Doug Cass, Bob, uh, famous hedge, hedge fund manager down in Florida. He says, the reason I make predictions is to make fortune tellers look good. And and I I I, I, I always I always laugh, but I I always feel a little bit like I'm in that I'm in that camp, you know. I'm, I make some of these predictions, and it probably makes the tarot card readers feel better about themselves. Um, so, Bob, as we go through the summer here, how long does and we got to finish up? And I'm sorry. How yep. long does the Fed stick with it, and do they blink uh, to political pressure? Will they continue to raise? Uh, high, uh, rates here through the end of the year, and how high? I like Powell,
4: and I think that you know his guidance, being very bellicose, is good. Rates haven't risen that much yet, and if things start to turn around, Powell's left himself enough wiggle room that he can back off. And even the markets are saying that rates are going to peak early next year around three point three percent, and then the Fed's going to back off. So again. I have a higher opinion of Powell I think than most. Um, I, I think you do too, but
1: I do very I high think I
4: think he's handling this as well as can be expected and he's perfectly obvious. he's perfectly explicit about blunt instruments. We don't know where this is going to happen. He said recently most of inflation is out of our control. He's said it just people don't want to listen to it. real quick. When we're talking about people make forecasts without knowing all the facts, there's a great book called Thinking in Bets, making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts. And everyone who, when I say, I don't know what's going to happen, I have them read this book. I actually have bought several and I hand them out. It's I bought wonderful.
1: several and I hand them out. I've got a stack of them Beautiful. in my office right now. Yes, sir. It's a fabulous book. Have you ever had Annie Duke on your show? No, but Harry, we need to do that. You know what? We really do. And one, one of the things she says is have a discipline and don't go with your gut. You've got to have a discipline right. that's grounded in the numbers and in the percentage returns because your gut will take you to the wrong place every time.
4: Yeah. And she uh, was a very successful professional poker player. Um, and so she has this experience, she has steel you know, in her belly and uh, a lot of what I've learned about sticking to your guns and not taking a few facts and extrapolating them into a weak forecast comes from this kind of thinking, decision thinking, and especially I think this book, especially for lay people, is fantastic
1: i think it is fantastic i'll give you one final book that i've read and i've read it twice in the past uh oh, 60 days because it was so important it's by arthur brooks um and it's called from strength to strength from strength to strength by arthur brooks different kind of book not on the economy and decision making and things much more about life and getting your priorities in order but it was very impactful for me and just a great read i do recommend it strongly thinking in Bets. Uh, It goes with one of my core tenets in investing, which is you can't listen to the emotion, and you really should turn off the TV and not get whipped up about stuff, because getting whipped up positively or negatively will take you to the wrong place. Robert Frick is Chief Economist for Navy Federal Credit Union. Thank you so much, Bob, for being with us on The Farcast. Oh, thank you, Michael. Always great. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another week of The Farcast as we cover Wall Street. Washington, and the world. We'll be back next week. Hope you have a great end of week and weekend. Thanks for listening. Please share us on social media. In Washington, D.C., for the Farcast and Hightower Advisors, I am Michael Farr.
0: Farr Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member of FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. All information referenced here is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Hightower Advisors LLC, Farm Miller in Washington, or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC, or any of its affiliates, assume no liability for action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented as to entity-entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisor for related questions.